episode 51 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than nine years' experience in Brazil and China. Today I present you with the man, the myth, Graham Earnshaw. Graham has been an independent publisher overseeing a variety of publications over the past couple of decades in China and continues to oversee the publishing house Earnshaw Books. Where to even start with Graham? In 2011, I moved to China with about $3,500 and a plan to freelance. And boy, oh boy, was I in over my head. Lucky for me, Graham gave me a job at his magazine, China Economic Review, and saved me from moving back to the United States in disgrace. As publisher of China Economic Review, or CER as we all called it, Graham gave a generation of China journalists their first editorial jobs in China, entrusting them with a huge amount of responsibility. The list of CER alumni is long and includes my fellow Reuters colleagues Pete Sweeney and Engen Tam, Jamil Anderlini and Hudson Lockett at the Financial Times, Anna Swanson at the New York Times, and Don Wineland at The Economist. The list goes on, and I'm certainly leaving some people out, including the many, many people who have gone on to success and careers outside of journalism. After working in various roles at CER, I became editor-in-chief of the magazine at only age 26. It was an incredible opportunity. For that, and giving me a job in the first place, I'm in Graham's debt. I do feel the need to mention that many of my colleagues had fraught relationships with Graham. He was the kind of guy who seemed to always speak his mind, and he could be stubborn as hell. I was young and idealistic, and we could sometimes have protracted arguments over things like editorial decisions around sponsored articles and things like that. Or like when I wrote a stock picks newsletter when I fundamentally didn't believe any normal person could make money off of stock picking. Honestly, I look back at this and I can't help but laugh. I try to recall why I felt so intensely and what it was about. It seems like small potatoes these days. But the diversity of feelings about Graham has to be acknowledged, as I'm sure some people who worked for him would take issue if this podcast was purely a glowing hagiography. One way or another, feelings around Graham were intense, but I'll go back to something Pete Sweeney said at his going-away party when he stepped down as editor-in-chief of CER, just as I was joining the magazine. Pete Sweeney appears in episode 23 of the podcast, so definitely go back and check that out if you haven't yet. To vaguely paraphrase Pete, he said that sometimes he would rage and stress about the magazine, but it's just because he cared so much about it. It meant something that he felt so intensely about it, even if it wasn't always positive. It was because we were all so invested in making the magazine. According to Pete, it was better to feel intense than ambivalent. When it comes to Graham, we used to chalk up any issues with him to the fact that you had to be a little bit crazy or a little bit brash or a little bit of something to take a risky bet like running a magazine in mainland China. But the fact that he made that bet was hugely beneficial for the journalists who worked at CER and got the opportunity to cut their teeth before going off to bigger publications. Suffice to say, in the end, Graham always did right by me. Working for Graham, stories swirled around him. Both Graham and my colleagues would drop into conversations bits and pieces of incredible stories from his biography. I didn't always know what was true, what was hearsay, and what was exaggeration. He was always scoping out new and sometimes sketchy-sounding side business ventures. Back then, maybe I was just too young and didn't have the courage to ask him about his business dealings or some of his crazier stories. But after this conversation, I realized if I had just asked him at the time, he probably would have told me straight up. Now in this episode, we lay out on the record most of his wildest stories. 
Graham led an incredible life long before he became publisher of China Economic Review. He was one of the first Western journalists allowed into China as a correspondent for Reuters in 1979 when the country was opening up. He will tell you about how he was the first journalist to witness a Tibetan sky burial, observing a body being hacked apart and fed to vultures. He recounts his early reporting on China's democracy wall, when it briefly seemed that economic opening might also bring political and social reforms. He tells us about how he received a leaked copy of the transcript of the trial of a key dissident in the democracy wall era, with one specific detail about it that you have to hear to believe. He also talks about his involvement in starting the music scene in mainland China. I could go on about Graham till I'm blue in the face, so I'll stop there. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Graham Earnshaw, an independent publisher based in China. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Graham. My great pleasure. And uh, we've got a lot to catch up on, but uh, we'll, we'll get there all in due time. So I usually start by asking you to just set the scene for us a little bit. Uh, what has your last week or so been like? Oh, busy, as always. At the moment, I'm working on the uh, preparation or the release and the marketing of two or three books, one of which is called The Eunuch, and it's a whodunit set in the 12th century. And the author is uh, the, the most prominent foreign actor in the Chinese film and TV drama business for the last 20 years. And he's got three million fans on the Chinese version of TikTok. And it's written really, really well, and he's an actor, and so he, he gets the dialogue part of it. And making that book uh, sell as well as it can in the West, internationally in English, and then trying to make it a bestseller in Chinese is one of the things that's driving me at the moment. Great. When, do, when is that slated to come out, did you say? It was released on May the 1st, internationally, and it's available for purchase now on Amazon. But the real event, I think, is going to be the Chinese version, the Chinese publication. And we've got a Chinese translation of it and we're going through uh, the author particularly is going through and fixing it making sure that it's true to the original meaning and then we're going to push it out there and see what can be done with three million fans as the basis of creating a publishing sensation in the china market <laughs> what what's the name of it again just in case people want to look for it on amazon the eunuch it's not an autobiography by the author it's a novel. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, glad to hear Earnshaw Books is still going strong. So then a major purpose of the podcast is to kind of tell the stories of journalists. And we like to start way, way back at the beginning. If you could first start by telling us uh, where you're from, so where you were born, a little bit about growing up, and if anything planted the seed early on that got you interested in journalism or media. Yeah, so my brain is basically a journalistic brain, but I have not been a reporter since 1989. I've been an editor, I've been dealing with words, I've been looking at the world from a journalistic perspective, of course, ever since. But my life really, as a journalist, goes back to my father, who was a, an editor with the Daily Mail in Manchester in the north of England, and then with the Daily Mirror, and then was poached by Rupert Murdoch to help with the start of the launch of Australia's first national newspaper, The Australian, in 1964. And we went to Australia 
and I spent my teens in Australia while my father was working for Murdoch in various roles. And that, that journalistic milieu and his approach is obviously something that had a huge impact on me, and I never really considered anything else other than journalism as a career. My first job was as a, a copy boy, a phrase which has probably disappeared by now, with the, uh, the Daily Mirror in Sydney. And I then went to university and failed. I passed the first year, except I failed English, which of course nailed me as a, as a future journalist. <laughs> and then uh, the second year, I just was not interested at all. I was studying arts law. It would have been a six-year process of finishing an arts degree and a law degree, and I just was not interested. And so a friend of my father's rescued me and took me to Hong Kong. And the original idea that it was that I was going to be a junior executive, trainee executive with the Swire group, and uh, I wasn't interested in that either, but I was immediately absorbed by the Chinese written language, and that more than anything else is what has sustained me through all of these years. And I did a language course that was organised by the Hong Kong government for English staff, government staff, including police inspectors. And then looked around for a job and got a job as a junior reporter on the South China Morning Post, which is the premier English newspaper in Hong Kong then and, and still today. And did that for two or three years. And then a position opened up at Reuters and the requirement was that the person be able to speak Cantonese and by then I could and I could also read but in, in, well I can read with a uh, with a with Cantonese pronunciation and this was what 76 early 76 and mm-hmm. uh, the big story of the year was the, was the death of Chairman Mao and I was there in the Hong Kong office to help with the Reuters coverage of that and then in 1978 they sent me to London as a sort of uh, part of the staff development process for local staff around the world. And then suddenly, at the end of 1978, China began to change. Deng Xiaoping became the leader of China, and the opening up market reform process began, and that resulted in the Reuters Bureau, which at the time in Beijing had two staff, was expanded to three posts, and I was chosen as the third. And the editor-in-chief at the time, a guy named Ian McDowell, called me and said, do you speak Mandarin? And I closed my eyes, as one does, and I said, yes. <laughs> I mean, my, my, my Mandarin was really poor, but I could speak Cantonese fluently and I could read really fluently. And when I got to, to Beijing, one of the key stories was uh, Democracy Wall, which was a wall in downtown Beijing on which were pasted large numbers of what were called big character posters with people writing out their thoughts on politics and everything else. And being able to read those posters was, uh, was essential. And I could do it. I could stand there. I was probably the only person in the street next to the wall reading the characters in Cantonese, but the meaning was the same. And that gave me probably the biggest scoop of my career, which was the transcript of the trial of the major dissident of that era, whose name was Wei Jingsheng. Wei was... What, what year was uh, this again? This was 79 or 80? 90, yeah, 79, 79. Gotcha. So this is right away, right when you show up. That's right, that's right. Wow. So 1979 was January the 1st, Beijing and Washington established diplomatic relations. 
democracy wall was going strong with lots of people putting up all sorts of ideas. It was an incredibly dynamic, vibrant sense of change. China was emerging from the Maoist era and it was not clear where it was going, how far it would develop, what changes would occur. But clearly something was moving, really tectonic. And it was an incredibly exciting time to be there. So in the middle of that, uh, this guy named Wei was publishing a Samizdat sort of magazine that was related to Democracy Wall. And there were, there were several publications at the time. His was called Exploration, Tatsor. And in one of these, he put an essay about what he called the fifth modernization. At the time, the Chinese... Deng Xiaoping, etc., were pushing for modernizations, including science and technology, agriculture, other things. And, and he said, in order for all this to work, there needs to be this fifth modernization. And this was a line too far for, for Mr. D. And immediately after China's Vietnam War, Wei was, uh, was arrested and detained and then was incommunicado for several months, and then, to, and then towards the end of that summer, there was word that there was going to be a trial, and there was a trial. And, of course, it was a closed trial, at least to, to foreigners. But he was sentenced to, by memory, 15 years. And then, through my contacts, I got a transcript of the entire proceedings of the trial, including a long speech which Wei made to the court. And it was the most amazing scoop. The problem was it was the only source for the information. Wow. And it wasn't, it wasn't backed up by, at that point by any other source. Later, maybe, I don't know, two, two months later, the entire transcript was pasted up on Democracy Wall, which vindicated the scoop. But the basic problem, and this is an interesting journalistic problem, was that in the middle of this incredibly long document with all sorts of question and answer between the judge and the, and the defendant and all that, was the question, you, Mr. Wei, provided to a foreigner, you provided military secrets on China's war or invasion of, of Vietnam. To which journalist, to who, who did you provide the information to? And Wei said, the Reuters bureau chief, Ian McKenzie. Now that was, Ian was my boss. <laughs> So, so what do you do, right? I mean, my boss is being named in the trial transcript that I have got as a scoop, right? Nobody else as being a part of the story. And this raised all... I mean, we had to report it, of course, um, but this raised all sorts of questions about the motivation. Why was Reuters reporting that its own chief correspondent was being implicated in the trial of the major dissident on the basis of stuff that related to military secrets. I mean, it was just so wacko and off the radar in terms of the story. And my guess is that Ian wasn't involved in any way, and that he never received military secrets from Wei, but that Wei did not like him personally. And in order to protect the, the journalist to whom he did provide information, or with whom he was closest, who was an AFP correspondent who has now unfortunately passed away, uh, named Francis... He, he named Ian instead of Francis. <laughs> and so that was, that was... But that was just an unbelievable story. And at the time, China was right front and centre in terms of the world. Everybody was looking at China and wondering about the changes that were taking place. China was not 
a hugely important economic part of the world. It was completely isolated, even more so than North Korea is today. But it was, it was a story that really resonated. That is, China is changing. And everybody was, was very curious, of course, about how far it would change. Deng Xiaoping made the cover of Time magazine, which in those days was important, well, I think twice in, in that particular year. And there was just this endless stream of stuff in China that was occurring, which made the news around the world. The first Charlie Chaplin movie to be aired in China in 30 years. The first time a Beethoven symphony was performed. Rudolf Nureyev was invited to direct the first performance of a Western ballet for 30 years. I met him behind the stage. It was Swan Lake. And I said, how much are they paying you? And he said, fuck off. <laughs> and, uh, and, and there were all sorts of people who were going through Beijing at the time. You know, people like Muhammad Ali and Bob Hope and top politicians. And it was the place to go. And the, the journalistic team was very small at the beginning in, in, the early, in early 1979. There were 36 foreign correspondents in China and probably half of them were working for the KGB. <laughs> I, they were, you know, allegedly journalists working for, you know, the Soviet Union or other East European countries, but their real job had nothing much to do with reporting in, uh, in journalistic terms. But the journalists who came in as a result of this massive shift were top individuals and they were ambitious. They were people on the move in terms of their journalistic careers. And so the people who, I mean, I just happened to be there. I wasn't one of the, I wasn't chosen in those terms to be in Beijing, but it's right place, right time is, you know, one of the secrets to life. And, and that worked for me. And I was one of the few people there who could really do Chinese and Francis and myself, basically, that was it. And it was just this enormously exuberating mess of, of activity and, and possibilities, which, was exhilarating. And in, in those early days, I mean, wh what was getting information like? I mean, were you heavily tracked? Were you followed? Were you, did they try to present you there? Like, was it a lot of official press conferences where you had to kind of read between the lines, that sort of thing? <laughs> oh, yes. Well, reading between the lines is still the, the basis of Chinese uh, journalism today. Uh, in fact, the, the basics of Chinese journalism has not changed at all. And I, and I don't know that China today, or the, you know, the upper echelons of the Chinese leadership, is any more transparent today than it was in uh, the late 70s. There was a lot more flexibility to information and contacts between outsiders and the insiders in those years, which is now just fundamentally, absolutely impossible. And so there were all sorts of ways in which it was possible to get a sense of what was going on and what the factional balance was in a way that is, in spite of all of the technology, is impossible in terms of being monitored. I mean, we, we could hear the listeners on the phone line. <laughs> <laughs> and so from the, the very earliest days in Beijing, there was a very clear awareness of, the, of surveillance. Um, there was a, a famous story which I heard from you know half a dozen directions at the time, from a European from Euro European people saying that they would talk in an obscure Swedish dialect and someone would come on the line and say, "Could you repeat that in standard Swedish, please?" <laughs> um, 
there was just there was an awareness on the part of everybody that surveillance was taking place, and there was on the part of the surveillors. I don't think that they were particularly embarrassed about it. It was what they did, and you know the nature of Chinese society is such that it's to be expected. And so there was no. I, I believe that on you know at least one or two occasions that apocryphal, or allegedly apocryphal story is actually true.、Uh, in terms of being followed around, of course we were followed around, but then and we still are. I mean, or at least not me now. I, I doubt if they pay you know any attention to me when I'm in China. But、uh, for journalists, you know, in Beijing, etc., then they're being followed ever more. But it's not. By footpads, it's not by people in cars. It's by the mobile phones. They absolutely know where everybody is, as does every, every government around the world. And basically, with technology, if a, a capability exists, then it will be used. And any government that says they're not using it is lying. The question is the motive, with obvious exceptions to it. I think that the the surveillance in the West is generally speaking aimed at、uh, stopping the baddies. Right. Yeah.、Um, one thing before we move on, going back to the democracy wall and the, the transcript, I, I remember you telling me that story once before, and I always forget to ask what happened as a result of that story. You would think somebody gets fingered as a spy and he gets kicked out of the country or something like that. But what what were the repercussions of that story? Who? For Ian McKenzie? Yeah. Yeah. And for Reuters, I mean, that's a bombshell. You would think China would be furious. Yes, well, they but they knew that Wei was lying too. <laughs> okay, and so there, there were no implications for Ian. Although Ian, and listen, he may still be alive. I have no, I haven't had any contact with Ian for、uh, decades. But my sense is that his career didn't benefit from it. There was this this cloud as a result of it, and he he left China pretty soon afterwards, as I remember. Gotcha. Okay. But yeah, wow, that's quite a first year, first big story to get. But there were no implications for Reuters.、Um, life continued in exactly the same way, which is the proof, I think, that they knew as well as、uh, you know, as well as I knew, that Ian was not involved and Reuters was not involved. That it was way just making it up. But you're right. Yeah, it was. It was an amazing start to what was you know a rocket launch of a, of a journalistic career. And reporting back then, I mean, did you get out of? Was it possible to get out of Beijing a lot? Did you get to see the whole country? Oh, we we could go to everywhere that was open, which was like eleven places. And with each place, you had to make an application ahead of time,、uh, at least two weeks ahead, and、uh, to try to drive out of Beijing. Every single road going out of Peking City, there was a sign at some point and a, and a guard box which said "foreigners not allowed beyond this point." Without a permit,、uh, so that there was absolute strict control on movement, and in, of course the the net has been loosened to some extent. But the basic principle is exactly the same today, as I understand it, as it was then. The, the basic comment that people always make about China is, "Wow, it's changed so much." The opposite is in fact true. I think that the things that have not changed about China are much, much more significant than the things that have. And so, in terms of Visiting other places, there were, I think, as I say, maybe ten or twelve places that could be visited with an application in advance. And I wrote a book called "On Your Own in China," which was a book about traveling around China on your own, published in I think nineteen eighty four. And there were already, you know, from seventy nine on, but into eighty eighty one eighty two, there was a growing number of backpackers, sort of adventurous pioneers. 
people who'd spent time in the Hindu Kush and Bali, back when Bali was really Bali, who'd just sort of wander off and just deal with the consequences of it. And for Chinese bureaucracy and the police, etc., they had no idea what was going on with these people. But there was a there was money to be made from them at a local level, and so there was uh, the beginnings of a of a sort of a, host, a hostile network that made it possible for them to travel around China, go down to Yunnan, uh, smoke some uh, some some dope, and uh, you know lead the hippie life, you know, but in a in a China context, and they loved it. And China in those days was much more flexible. And so I wasn't able to do any of that stuff, but I was able to uh, to document it a little bit. You know, traveling around China in those days was really extraordinary and wonderful for a whole bunch of reasons. One of them being that the clear differences, the regional variations, were still intact. That is, Kunming is fundamentally was fundamentally different from Harbin. Uh, Xi'an was completely different from Fuzhou because of the cultural background of all of these places. They all had long, long histories. They built up and become what they were. And that is now all gone. Every city in China looks basically the same. And, uh, you know, as a result of a fear of history and also the priority of development, of making money, and, you know, for local officials and local business people, knocking down all the old cities was absolutely priority number one, regardless of the cultural consequences of that. But in terms of traveling around China in the early 80s, it was just fantastic. And people were really interested in seeing a foreigner because they hadn't seen, they'd never seen one before. And so there was this sense of being a superstar, which has gone now completely, which is fine by me. What I've always wanted is foreigners in China to be treated as just normal human beings. It's the two extremes, either superstar or evil spy, which is just tedious in the end but it was the, but there's that and also the old china which was still visible to a, a significant extent was was fascinating and in spite of all of the impact of the cultural revolution and of course you know before the war you know the, the fundamentals of chinese society and of the structure the basic structure of the towns the cities and the countryside were still visible there were still the massive water wheels in the countryside the water buffalo everywhere all of the villages and the towns looked basically as they had, you know, 200 years ago. That's not quite true. You know, the biggest change in terms of uh, small towns across China occurred not during the time of the communists, but before that. That is, every town across China used to have a wall around it. And those walls were knocked down after the revolution in 1911, not after the communist revolution. Oh, I didn't know that's when they tore them down. I had always kind of assumed it had happened, yeah, sometime after the communist revolution when they were fighting the, the KMT, but I had no clue. And uh, so, I mean, there are a lot of ways we can go from here, but it's basically a choose your own adventure. So I guess uh, take us forward a little bit in time. What are, what are some of the highlights going forward? Do, do you have any other big stories you remember from that time? There were lots of amazing stories. I, I was for two years, three years, I was the... China correspondent for the London Daily Telegraph, and I didn't have to deal with the daily grind of news agency work, but I was churning out the stories. I was doing at least one a day for the Telegraph, and they were using it all because China was... This was 1981 to 1984, and, but I also got to travel a lot and do things in a more relaxed sort of newspaper way rather than the, the news agency way. 
and there were a number of fantastic opportunities. The, the one that springs to mind is Lhasa. We went to Lhasa 1981, I think, 40 years ago. And there was myself and a British diplomat who was on the tour named Will Dennis. And we decided that we wanted to go to see the place where the sky burials take place. The Tibetan tradition is that bodies are not buried because the ground is too hard to dig. It's too much hard work. And so they chop up the bodies and feed them to these monster vultures. And we'd read about this. And there was a, a place behind the Serra mon Monastery outside, several miles outside of Lhasa, where allegedly there was this rock where it occurred every morning. And so he and I, we were staying in a, in a guest house. The door and the, gate and, the, and the gate were locked, but we climbed out of a window at three o'clock in the morning and guards are asleep. And uh, <laughs> we, we walked out and we walked through Lhasa, the streets of Lhasa, heading in the direction of the Serra Monastery. Went around, we didn't get lost. Amazingly, we found our way made our way up the mountain along this dirt track and we got to a place in front of us where there was a little campfire and a big liberation army truck and a liberation truck sorry with a body on the back or with something white it wrapped up on the back and there were some tibetans around the fire and they invited will and myself to sit down and we had some tea the disgusting tibetan tea and to the extent that we could communicate they were extremely welcoming and very, very friendly. And then some Chinese arrived, and they were not so friendly to them. But anyway, then the, the sky master, the sky burial master arrived. The, the body was transferred to this massive rock, which was a sort of like a ramp. It was like a, an almond stone on its back. And the guy had this massive, massive knives on his hips. The body was transferred over... And these massive vultures are beginning to congregate on the... It's an incredibly vertical landscape around this particular situation. And he started to cut up the, uh, the body, and it's, they, they drain all the blood out. So it's not a bloody process. And this is all very close. I'm guessing 20 feet, 25 feet, wow. something like that. And we watched, and then they crush all the bones in these depressions in the rock and then sprinkle the bits of bone over the meat to feed to the vultures. Uh, my understanding is that the belief is that, uh, that the whole body needs to be consumed by the vultures in order for the spirit to ascend to heaven. And so on the rocky outcrops around us, there are the Tibetan uh, flags, and there is smoke rising from here and there, and it's just... It's, it's a really intensely cultural setting with this extraordinary event taking place in front of us that is a human being is being cut up. I was worried about whether I would find it disgusting or nauseous or whatever. I didn't in any way have a problem, nor did I have any problem with the, the high altitude. And then a jeep roared up the hill <laughs> uh, with the officials from the, from the foreign ministry, and they were really pissed. <laughs> they were really pissed. And they told us, you know, not to not to tell anybody that we'd done it, and this, that, and the other. And so, but I wrote the story, and it was published in the in the Daily Telegraph. And, and I was known for years and years and years in China. I was known for years and years as the the first journalist ever to have witnessed a sky burial, because my stories were very often reprinted in a newspaper called the Reference News, Tangkao Xiaosi. That was the news source that was. 
that was believed, the People's Daily is lies, but reference news is truth, was the belief, which was, of course, wrong. It was all lies, but never. Um, but the last time was probably about eight years ago. Somebody said, oh, you're the guy who reported I said, yes. I mean, that's 30 years ago, for God's sake. It's just unbelievable. But this is all a reflection of how closed China was, and there were the opportunities to do all sorts of things like that, which now, of course, would be just impossible, just impossible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, journalists going to Tibet now is, I mean, they're all very extremely orchestrated trips. I mean, it sounds like, yeah, not so different from what they were trying to give you back then, and you just snuck out. Mm-hmm. That's right. We snuck out, yeah. It was great fun. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, sneaking out then was, you know, there was this great fun aspect to it. I don't think there's any fun in doing that kind of thing in China today. Yeah, yeah. In terms of the interactions between journalists and, uh, you know, officialdom. Yeah, it's taken a, a, a turn for the far more serious, less comic. It's more fraught. I think it's more fraught. There, there was always that tension there, but it, it relates to the overall sense of, openness and the extent to which we need these people, right? So there was a sense back then that we need the foreign media in order to reflect what is happening to China, to manipulate them (laughs) by being nice to them. And that was very effective. The whole democracy wall story, just to go back to that one, was manipulation of the Western media by the Dung faction in order to hit out at the other guys within the Chinese leadership. And so Deng Xiaoping would have somebody write or the Dung faction would have big character posters stuck up on Democracy Wall, which would be reported by Reuters and the other Western media, which would then go on VOA Chinese service and come back into China and be used as a way of bashing somebody or other. These these kinds of circles were used then, and I'm sure they're still used today. Right. And just, I'm curious about access back then. I mean, now... I know, you know, you're lucky if you're a journalist to even be in a room with Xi Jinping. I mean, was it back then? Was it possible? Did you ever interview Deng Xiaoping? Did you have any contact with the leaders or did they still keep you pretty far away? Oh, far more, far, far more than today. I stood right next to him on one day. I was in the same room as him 20 times, 30 times, I don't know, a lot of many times. And so the sense of accessibility of these people was enormous compared to today. Wow. He was very short. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask. <laughs> and second, it, it sounds like you reported for a, a lot of different outlets. What, what what was kind of the sequence of things? No, only two. Oh, well, I was working for Reuters. I then resigned, worked for the London Daily Telegraph, and then Reuters poached me back again to be the Reuters bureau chief in Beijing. And then I was the, the bureau chief from 85 to 87 in Beijing, which was... Again, a time of huge change and uh, questioning and wondering about where all this is going. The head of the Chinese Communist Party was Hu Yaobang. As an Australian diplomat said to me at the time, it's not who you know, it's who you bang. <laughs> That's hilarious. You know, he was a man who was very open. He grasped what Deng was doing. And there was this question, this fundamental question about the extent to which China could open to the outside world economically, the extent to which life could change, you know, the economy internally, uh, social, 
without there being some sort of reflection of that in terms of the overall political structure. And it was Dung's view that there would be no change. But there wasn't clarity on that, and certainly who, whose death in 1989 resulted in other, other developments, clearly believed that the best way forward was some kind of a, of a transition in terms of the political structure. And so it was a time of, again, you know, like 79, but, but, a, but a more developed version of China at that stage, but still this basic question of where are we going? And isn't it amazing that the future is completely open? All the possibilities are out there. And so, again, a time of great promise. Right, yeah. So I was, I was the, bureau, the bureau chief in Beijing, and then I got posted to Tokyo and did two years in uh, Tokyo at the, the height of the Tokyo financial bubble. And in one of the market wraps at the end of one of the days, pulled out of the obscurity of a New Zealand stock report, a key phrase which has been used many times since, but which I believe had never been widely used before, which is the description of a slight rise in a stock market as being a dead cat bounce. And I would like to claim credit for having made that to some extent, an international phrase. You'd pulled it out of a stock, like a stock analysis report or something from... Well, uh, so the, the role, Tokyo's role in those days was to do an Asian stock roundup at the end of every day. And we used to pull stuff out of all of the, the stock reports, you know, the one-page stock reports from Singapore, Hong Kong, New Zealand, and everywhere else, and wrap them all up. And so I saw that phrase and I thought, that is a great phrase. <laughs> It's not a major claim to fame, but it'll do. Sure, that in the sky burial. Mm. And so you were watching from Tokyo when, when things kind of came to a head in China in 1989? That's right. And I was, of course, pulled in. They were getting very short of people. And I, uh, I went in and I was, I was there, I think, twice overall. And the, uh, the second time I was, I was posted to the square on a regular shift on the evening of... June the 3rd, and was there when things started to change, and I watched, you know, the chaos of that night from the perspective of the square, and watched the tanks roll roll onto the square, myself and another Reuters reporter named Elizabeth Pisani. I hope Elizabeth is well, I hope she hears this. That was an extraordinary evening for, a night for both of us. Elizabeth then went back to the hotel, I think I told her to just go away, and I stayed because this is one of the, the, the curses of being a journalist, is that you have this sense of immortality, that I am a bystander, this is not my fight, and so therefore the bullets won't hit me. And, uh, and so I stayed and I watched. And uh, I wrote a, a long memoir about it, 12,000 words or so, which is up on my homepage. You remember homepages, it's a great 20th century tradition. Right. And so, you know, that was a sort of a period marker, full stop at the end of uh, the end of the 1980s, this 10-year process. And Mr. D had made his point very clear. Right. But in terms of my career, I had spent two years as chief correspondent in Tokyo, allegedly understanding what was going on with the financial markets. And I was clearly on top of the China story. And so I was the obvious choice in terms of being pushed upstairs and so I was made news editor in Hong Kong, Asian news editor 
And uh, then the editor, about a year after that, returned to London, and so they made me the editor. And so I was the editor for Asia, for Reuters, except for Japan, for five years, which was just insanely fantastic, you know, from Pakistan to New Zealand. It was all mine, I tell you, all mine. And uh, <laughs> managing this team of, I think it was 300 journalists at the time, was exhilarating and helping to make it the best coverage that we could in terms of the financial news, the general news, all of the news, of sticking to the Reuters traditions of the agency of record, of being understandable, of being balanced and accurate. It meant a lot to me. And uh, those basic traditions, which I sense have survived within Reuters, in spite of all the changes that have taken place within Reuters in the, in the decades since, that was sort of one of the core principles of my life. And it was a great honour to... Uh, to play that sort of a role. And then came 95, and there were changes within the, the management of Reuters, particularly in Asia. And I was on the wrong side of it, and they decided that it was time for a change. And they offered me a job, you know, a sort of a, a graveyard coffin job in Australia to just get rid of me. And I said, well, how about Shanghai? which is unheard of in, in, you know, in journalistic terms. Shanghai reported to Beijing, which reported to the deputy news editor, which reported to the news editor, which reported to the editor. And I was the editor. That's like four steps or five steps below in the bureaucracy. And uh, they couldn't say no. And so I replaced Andy Brown, who was the Shanghai correspondent for Reuters at the time. A absolutely top-rate uh, person. Went on to the top rate as he is at everything for the Wall Street Journal and now works for Bloomberg, doing all sorts of interesting and useful things for Michael Bloomberg. And I spent two years in Shanghai as the Reuters correspondent, and there was, again, lots of stuff going on, enormous amount of change, but there was also stuff going on outside in Shanghai, and I took the view, uh, which I, I apologize for this, I still do to an extent which is that journalists are people who write about other people doing things. Sure. And I decided that I, I wanted to do something myself. And there is a passivity to being a journalist. I'm not saying that the role of journalists is, is useless or irrelevant, but there is doing it and there is talking about somebody else doing it. And so when you talk about something like the question of what is the value of the U.S. dollar going to be in, in a year's time? Or, you know, something, something like, where, where is the Dow going? Some question like that. What's the, what's the political future of China? You know, whatever the big question is. Be very wary of listening to the journalist's answer because they have no skin in the game. Or rather, let, let me put it another way, to the extent that they don't have skin in the game is an extent to which you should be cautious in terms of whatever they say. Whereas a businessman... Uh, has to think about it and has to get it right. Now, the problem with business people, of course, is that they're more likely to lie than the journalist is. And so, you, you know, there's a balance of issues in terms of believing what various people say. But anyway, I decided that uh, it would be, you know, I, I wanted to do something. And so I set up with a friend of mine here, set up various projects. We did a nightclub. There was a guy named, there is still, he's uh, Tony, Tony Jang. And uh, also Marcus Brauchwood, who went on to be the, the Wall Street Journal editor and then the editor of the Washington Post. He now runs an investment fund out of Washington, D.C. And we set up this uh, nightclub. And I also set up a, a little 
company that did translation services and website design. And that morphed through to, to doing other things, including a uh, pretty much late and definitely lamented uh, magazine called China Economic Review, which is how I first met you, Joe. Right, right. Just curious about the nightclub, because I had, I think I had heard that secondhand from somebody, but it was, it was on some park. Where, where was it exactly? In, inside a park called the Fusing Park. F-U-X-I-N-G. It's a name which uh, often caused embarrassment for American tourists. <laughs> sure, but yeah, no, I know that park for sure. It's right next to, you know, the elevated highway right now. Right. And so at the time, there, there was no basic, you know, there were, there was, uh, there were a couple of bars at, uh, at hotels, and, but there was, nowhere, there was no nightlife in Shanghai. And to a large extent, we created it. In terms of venues we, we created, in terms of live music, I, uh, there was another place that called the Blues and Jazz Bar, which I, I said to the owner, you should, you should do live music. And he said, how do you do that? I said, you buy a microphone. And so I got a, an American guitarist to go with me, and we started live music um, in this bar, just a little bar. But three weeks, this is 1996, and within three weeks, the queue of taxis was half a kilometer long, and you couldn't get to the bar to buy beer because there were just so many people in the bar flowing out onto the, onto the street just because of guitarist and me, sing, and me singing. Unbelievable. Um, and, and, and anyway, so, that, so there was that opportunity. Ch- Shanghai was just opening up and there was an opportunity to do stuff. And so I built this little, uh, little company. So the translation stuff brought me into contact with a lady named Freddie Bush who had an agreement with Simha News Agency uh, that related to financial information. And she was putting together a venture, which was called Simhar Finance. And you know, she saw the benefits that I, that I brought to it in terms of understanding of China and Chinese and stuff. And so I became a, uh, a key part of that operation. That was from 2000 on. And that was Beijing, not Shanghai. And so I spent, I spent most of my time in Beijing uh, over all those years and, and after. So so wait, just to, to go to, when when did you acquire China Economic Review, the brand? So the, the China Economic Review was founded by a company in London in around 1990. And at the time, doing a magazine like that out of London made a lot of sense. But by the early 2000s, it didn't make any sense anymore. And we were doing a lot of work for the company on a freelance outsourced basis. And at some point, I... I said to the guy, well, how about we, we, buy the, we buy the brand? And so we agreed on a price, uh, not a big price, and I bought the name, and most importantly, the, the domain name, ChinaEconomicReview.com, and then sort of localized it and built it in the early 2000s at a time when, one, business magazines were still of crucial importance, and two, China, uh, the Chinese leadership, was still was playing with the idea of truly having China being integrated into the world, <laughs> not just in terms of uh, trade, buying and selling things, but an integration that went beyond that. And so in terms of things like a venture such as that, there was an awareness and an acceptance uh, of it, it to an extent that, that would certainly not be the case today. And Simha Finance was in, in the same category. That is, the existence of Simha Finance was based upon an assumption about how China would, would change and develop over the coming years in a way that, that did not, uh, in the end, happen. But it provided an opportunity to 
to look at China, to, to report on China, to provide analysis of China from the perspective of foreigners living in China, wishing China well, but having a, an independent view, of, uh, an international view of what was happening. That was sort of the idea behind China Economic Review and also the idea behind Earnshaw Books, which I founded in 2005. And also Simhai Finance and also just about everything else that I've done in my life, actually. Creating the bridge, creating, trying to... I mean, I'm not, I'm not a, a saint and I'm not trying, you know, it's not, it's not selfless, but I think behind just about everything that I do in this regard, I think there's an effort to try to create a clearer understanding on the part of people outside China of the nuances of what's going on here. And I think that China Economic Review played a, uh, a useful role in the years that it, that it was there. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we'll, we'll get to China Economic Review uh, in just a second because it was hugely important to my career and to a lot of my peers. Uh, the Xinhua finance stuff, that was all before my time, and it's fine if you don't want to talk about it, but I, I just remember the the idle gossip was that it, it all kind of wrapped up with everybody going to jail except for you, um, and I don't know if that's actually true or not, but that was the idle gossip. I'm sure you never personally told me that, but uh, I was just wondering. It's not true, and the um, uh, it was an extremely complicated story at a time when from a financial perspective and playing the Simha finance game in terms of both China and the capital markets in the United States was on the edge of the possible. It was absolutely the edge of the possible. And for various reasons, two of the, uh, the people involved were sort of targeted by the Department of Justice in the United States. And there were three people who were indicted as a result of it. And two of them went to jail. Freddie Bush did not. But my sense is the question of shenanigans in terms of the financial markets and doing these kinds of ventures, it's really difficult. You know, there's a huge gray area as to what is acceptable and what is not acceptable, what is legal, what is not, what is not legal. And pushing the envelope in terms of what is regulatorily possible is a part of playing the game of, uh, you know, the development of life. And so... All of the people involved, I think, were good at what they, they do, which is seizing on a good idea and pushing it as far as they could. And it was a great pleasure, and I'm still in contact with all of them. And the ultimate question of guilt or not guilt, I think, needs to be viewed through this, this prism of you know, the huge greyness that, that attaches to what you might call extreme, with an X and no E, extreme finance. <laughs> extreme finance it, it was some sort of insider trading thing right well it, but it's yeah but but it's incredibly complex and it's you know it's incredibly arguable as to what the precise terms are and i cannot you know at the time if you'd asked me 10 years ago i could have probably given you some a more lucid answer to all this but the overall impression first of all i think it would make a great book but i'm not going to write it but i think it would be it would uh, I, I think the whole thing is a um it, it's the story of taking the road less traveled and taking a good idea and taking it as far as it will go. And listen, when you're playing on the edge, on the edge like that, sometimes things happen, which, you know, it, it, it just happens. Uh, this takes me back to 1979. There's a, a mountaineer who was, I think, still quite famous, named Chris Bonington, one of the great, great mountain climbers of the 20th century. And he and... 
a couple of friends went to Mount Everest in mid-1979, and uh, two of them fell off the mountain and died, two of, his, you know, two of the other climbers, English guys. And he came back to Beijing, and I met him in the Peking Hotel. And he cried as he talked about how his two friends had died falling off Mount Everest. And I, thought, I looked at him, and I thought, if you climb Mount Everest <laughs> and you fall <laughs> off, right, you've, got to, you've just got to accept the consequences that it's possible that you might fall off. And I didn't have much sympathy for him in terms of that particular thing. And I, I would have preferred it if he hadn't cried. And I think that if you are a mountain climber, a professional mountain climber, and you accept, and I think most of them do, the possible consequences exist that I might fall off and I might die. And that's a part of the game. That's a part of that particular life. And the same is, is true of extreme finance. The Department of Justice might take a negative view on what you're doing. In the, mid, the midst of all that greyness, what the actual reality is, perfect example is Michael Milken, who uh, is the man who inspired the movie Wall Street, I think. And he was, again, extreme finance. He spent, was it two years in jail? An excellent man, but he now runs the Milken Conference Forum, whatever it's called. It's one of the, the, one of the great financial annual get-togethers of the rich and famous. Right, yeah, and I mean, in, in China, that's all amplified, it's all in a gray area. I remember when I first started at China Economic Review, you told totally. me, well, welcome to China, where everything is, everything is possible, but nothing is legal, I think it was. No, 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 no. Uh, nothing is allowed, but everything is possible. Nothing is allowed, and everything is possible, that's it. Right, I wrote a song which is called that, Nothing is Allowed, Everything is Possible. <laughs> And I think it's original, and I think it's a good line, and, I, and also uh, it's helpful that I also think it's true. So, uh, so yeah, I, I guess this is where I come in. I come in, you know, in, I guess it would have been 2011, so you've, you've been running CR for quite a while at that time. And, you know, already when I was coming in, I guess actually to go back even, I, I was almost an intern at China Economic Review when I was a study abroad student. I remember going into that office and having an interview. I ended up working for some place called the Asia Weekly instead in Beijing for a guy named Jasper Becker for that summer. Mm, I know Jasper. Oh, you do? Okay. Is he still sure. alive? Uh, I don't know, actually. Um, uh, he's The last I heard, he's uh, landed gentry sort of in England. The Asia Weekly was not a success. I could talk a little bit more about it, but I won't. But anyway, it collapsed, and he and his wife, I think Polish, the smart thing they did was to buy a, uh, a villa in Beijing, and they sold it and took the money and bought an extravagant place in, in, in England. Uh, that, that's my, my memory of the story. Okay. He, he, con he continues. I've known Jasper many years, and he, he and I uh, were on a, the same trip to North Korea once in 1986. That was fun. Oh, yeah, he was, I mean, I didn't know him too well, despite being an intern sitting at three desks from him. I just remember him smoking cigars in the office uh, back mm -hmm. when people would still do that sort of thing. And just thinking, yeah. wow, this is, you know, like from another era. But yeah, so anyway, first, I'd been in that office. And then I walk in, you know, four years later, post college. And uh, I guess to back up just like the, how I got the job, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I, 
I had emailed around to like professors at Northwestern where I went to college and somebody knew Richard McGregor. Mm-hmm. And so I emailed him. He gave me your contact. I emailed you. Yeah. And I think you might have been under the impression that I actually knew Richard McGregor. So you're like, <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. Like, come yeah. come down. To, I was in Beijing. Come down to Shanghai. We'll meet in person. Yeah. We talked. He wow. gave me a test. At first, you were like, you can be an intern. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. And then I lucked into you did hire me. So I'm, it's one instance where I'm like very, very glad I like stood up for myself. And I was like, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you did that for a lot of people. You handed pe- a lot of people a lot of responsibility early in their careers. Absolutely. Um, and I knew that going in. I mean, people around the office would talk about people like Tim Burroughs and like the FT bureau chief. I'm blanking on his name. Uh, had worked for you. Jamil Andalini, he's now the Asian editor for the Financial Times and a rising star and a really hot opinion writer for the Financial Times in terms of nailing what is going on in this part of the world. He's doing a fantastic job. I've got a lot of time for Jamil. And I'm very proud of the fact that I gave him his first journalistic job. And others too, James King, amongst others, the China global editor for the Financial Times, also the Financial Times. And many others. You know, in terms of Everything that I've done over the past 25 years, or more, you know, 30 years, I think the thing that I'm most proud of is the fact that, that I've been able to be used as a rung by so many people to enhance their careers in various ways. And there's people all over the world and in all sorts of areas, particularly journalistic areas, who had a, a first start with me in some, in some form or another. And I'm really, I'm really proud of that. And yeah, I mean, that was a big turning point for me. I mean, I had moved to China with an idea I would freelance in about $3,000. And <laughs> I'd moved to Beijing and that was running out quick. And if, mm-hmm. you know, I was going to have to make visa runs because none of us were on. I mean, I at least mm-hmm. wasn't on a legit visa until I, I joined CER. Mm-hmm. Why? And uh, yeah, it was really like it, it was the difference between probably going home in shame or, you know, the career exactly. I have today. So Absolutely. And uh, I remember I joined and Pete Sweeney left about a month later to go to Reuters and mm-hmm. kind of the light bulb went off. I was like, the, I could really do this. I could really make a career of this. That's right. That's right. It's leveraging the opportunity. And so in terms of what I've done in the past, I still get people, you know, maybe, you know, on average, God, is it one a week? It could be on average saying, can you provide a reference? And of course, I always do. <laughs> But and yeah, I mean the list goes on. Anna Swanson's now with the New York Times. Um, people after me, Hudson Lockett is, I think, at the FT as well. FT people. Yeah. What what does Anna do? Uh, she reports on trade for the New York Times in DC. Okay. Yeah, yeah, she's done quite well since moving back to the states, and probably more people I'm forgetting. But uh, yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. I, I do want to say thank you just right up front. I know we had kind oh, of a my great pleasure. A contentious relationship at times, but I think it was always contentious, but Did we? productive. I have no memory of that at all. None at all. I mean, I, I remember like uh, sitting in the middle of the newsroom and we would argue about this or that, about stocks or random walk theory. I, I look back at that oh, time okay. and I think like, man, I was sure idealistic and confident back then. Um, it's uh, mm-hmm. funny to look back on. 
But uh, but yeah, no, I think we we would get in arguments, but I think they always had a kind of a productive end, and Good. they weren't destructive. Mm-hmm. And yeah, well, I mean, my my approach on these things is is to be animated. Um, I'm a fairly animated person, um, but I'm not argumentative. I don't believe, or not usually. Um, some people misinterpret the animation as being aggressive or argumentative, and I don't. That, that's not the intention. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I look back on it well. So, so yeah. What to talk about China Economic Review? I guess. How do you look back on all of that? Well, for me, you know, the, the most important thing about China Economic Review, from the perspective of today, is the fact that I started walking across China or in 2004. And so for many years, each issue, it was a monthly magazine, each issue of the magazine used to carry a column that I wrote based upon my, my ramblings across China. So the idea of the walk was that every month I would go out and I would always go back to the millimetre to the last place that I stopped walking and then continue. And in that way, I walked from Shanghai right across China and wrote a book about it, which is called The Great Walk of China, which is available on Amazon published by a publisher in Hong Kong. And so uh, it was just like the China Economic Review in a way. It was a way of just doing it, was a way of understanding China more. But the walk, that is walking through the fields and the villages and the most basic level was an experience which was unforgettable, which created an understanding for me, an understanding of China, which still has a lot of value, even though China changes very fast, at least on a superficial level. And much of what I saw now, of course, doesn't exist anymore. But nevertheless, if there's a way that I'm going to be remembered, I'd like it to be my music more than anything else. But I think that guy who walked across China is possibly one of the ways that I, I remember. It's something. It's a very easy way of defining somebody, and it's not untrue. And I've done many talks over the years that are sort of at least uh, the hook for the talk was the walk across China. And I think you were still in the process of doing it when I was there. So when and where did it finish? Well, it hasn't finished, Jake, (laughs) and it will continue. But in terms of other priorities and work and physical location and other things, it's been not possible to continue for for a number of years now. The last time I was out, I stopped about 130 kilometers to the east of Chengdu. And my plan remains to get to Chengdu, turn left, and go south by five degrees of latitude, and then turn east, and then walk back through the coast. But it's a matter of time, you know. Right, yeah. I can imagine it's very time-consuming. And one thing I want to ask about that, it's fine if you don't want to talk about it. I mean, this might be just Bush League psychoanalysis, but I was wondering if uh, if it's not too sensitive to ask about if you your leg had anything to do with the mm-hmm. reason why you wanted oh. did you want to prove you could do it sure right so I have I limp as a result of having tuberculosis of the bone at about the age of 11 and that resulted in uh, my thigh bone my right thigh bone and my pelvis being fused but they did it wrong in England and they did it wrong in Australia and they finally got it right in Hong Kong when I was 20 years old uh, the surgeon who operated on me in, in Hong Kong was uh, world famous. Uh, I got him for two Hong Kong dollars a day because I was a sort of a student at the University of Hong Kong at the time. But there was George Wallace, the, the governor of Alabama, <laughs> famous racist, who was shot 
and this Professor Hodgson was called from Hong Kong to go to operate on Wallace to save his life. Wow. And uh, I got him, and, and, uh, and, it's, and it's held together from the age of 20 through to what I am now, 68, nearly 50 years. And so he did a good job. <laughs> um, but the, the result of that was that my, uh, my right leg is to some extent deformed, and, and I walk with a, a limp. I don't think about it at all. And therefore, I think mostly people don't think about it either. But one of the results is that I can't run and I can't play tennis. And the most important reasons for doing the walk, I think, was to do what I can do, which is to walk. I can walk. And so I said, well, I'm going to walk. I was inspired by a book written by a guy named Edwin Dingle, who was a journalist in Singapore, who wrote a book called Across China on Foot. And he started from, he took a, a ship to Shanghai, took a boat up the Yangtze River to Chongqing, Chongqing, and then started out southwest from Chongqing across Sichuan through Yunnan to the Burmese border. In other words, he worked from Chongqing uh, to Burma. And I, I was sitting in a Japanese restaurant one night reading this, and I thought, that's not walking across China. And so decided the next day to, to start myself and went to the Bund on the river in Shanghai and started walking westwards and continued through to where I last stopped. And the Dingle was, didn't speak a word of Chinese, and his, his book is mostly a series of descriptions of magnificent scenery and tirades about the squalor of the hotels along the way. And so he wasn't able to really get into what is going on around me. And so I could talk to everybody. And, and you know, walking, the basic idea is to walk by myself. And only on a very few occasions has anybody come with me because it's fundamentally different. Walking alone along a road is a different experience from walking with somebody because if I'm with you, Jake, you and I are going to talk, inevitably. And so we're not paying full attention. And also, if we meet somebody, if it's just me limping along the road, there's no reason why anybody feels threatened and they're quite happy to talk to me. But if you and I are walking along the road, they're going to be wary. And so walking alone is, is really important and opened up all sorts of conversations along the way. And it's just uh, the walk. It wasn't done for athletic or health reasons. The leg was only a spur in terms of saying to God, fuck you. But it was really about all the conversations along the way about talking to people. Great. So I think we're kind of rounding out the biographical section then. Is there anything else you want to add? Do you want to talk about the music at all? Well, music has been really important to me all the way through. And so I, I started playing in Hong Kong in the 70s. And there was a bar called The Old China Hand that I played in and made a name for myself with that little crowd with a couple of songs that were vaguely political. One was called The Governor's Blues, about a police mutiny or an alleged police mutiny in 1977 with the PLA waiting on the border. And if the police actually had mutinied because they were trying to stop the Independent Commission Against Corruption from basically rolling up everybody in the police force who at that point had been corrupt at some point during their career... And if they had mutinied, then the PLA would have gone over the border and taken over Hong Kong in 1977. But the police didn't mutiny. And the song, the chorus of the song is, I've got the governor's views, I've got the governor's blues, I'm sick of the whole bloody thing, ordered around by a bunch of young cops, I'm just waiting for Peking to ring. So when I got to China, I used to take my guitar with me on all the trips that I did, and that provided all sorts of opportunities for doing weird and amazing things. I took my guitar to Lhasa and carried up 
onto the roof of the Patala and played guitar. There's a photograph that shows me playing guitar on the roof of the Patala. And I always used to say that I, I played the song Hello Die, but it's not true. I actually played <laughs> Maybelline by Chuck Berry. And there was a KGB agent there as well. I'm, I'm sorry, I mean a, uh, a correspondent for TASS News Agency who, who also played a song, a Russian song called Tibet, which was nice. And there were many other experiences with that guitar. But in Beijing, there was a, a Canadian diplomat named Ted Littman who had a, a Fender Telecaster and a twin reverb Fender amp. And he was leaving, so I bought them. And I put together a three-piece band, which I named the Peking All-Stars. And it was China's first rock and roll band. And uh, we played in all sorts of places. And we were... Some of the performances were attended by Chinese people and the first generation of rockers in China and jazz musicians in China, particularly Tui Jian and, and Liu Er, they heard the power of four-on-the-floor rock music. First from the Peking All-Stars, Tui Jian and his friend, the sax player Liu Er, wanted to join our band and I made the decision not to allow him to do so because I felt that it would not be good for his future career to be associated with foreigners and, you know, naive on my part. But it's provided me with the claim that I've made, and it's true, over the years many times, which is that I rejected Sui Jian for my band. <laughs> and then in 95, when I came to Shanghai, there was this opportunity to do the live music, which I mentioned earlier. And in a way, I played a role in terms of reviving jazz in Shanghai. And uh, many of the players had their first chance, the Chinese players had their chance, their first chance to play jazz live, it was, was in that bar I mentioned with me. Just, a, you know, an honour to have the opportunity. Not because I'm great at any of these things, right? It's just right place, right time. This is the real secret to life. It's not about necessarily... I mean, you've got to be able to do stuff at a reasonable level, but you don't have to be a star. The most important thing is, are you in the right place at the right time? And if you are, then you can, can create something which has long longevity. Definitely true for me. Uh, right place, right time is very important. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask real quick that I almost forgot about was just about your relationship to learning languages, because people say to me, for example, oh, you know, Chinese, Portuguese, you must be very good at languages. And I, I mean, I personally think I'm not very good at languages. I like I've learned exactly enough to communicate, to talk to people to have everyday conversations and then I stop. You know, I'm not somebody who goes in deep and is a, you know, big admirer of... Well, I, I wish I was the, uh, engaged with it on this sort of intellectual level. But but obviously you've learned Cantonese, you've learned Mandarin. I imagine you learned a bit of Japanese at some point. How do you view your relationship with learning languages? Well, my relationship is largely with, of course, English and then... Chinese and Chinese has been very important to me throughout my career and I'm sure will continue to be so in one way or another and for whatever reason I was really drawn particularly to the written language that is the Chinese language is based upon a, a pictorial written system it's not it's not phonetic it's not phonetic in the way that it uses sound or strokes to indicate you know things like a b and c to indicate sounds and the pictorial nature of the Chinese language was something which, written language, was something that uh, 
that was attracted to me right from the beginning. I have no idea why, but it's continued to be a source of of huge wonder. Uh, could my Chinese be better? Absolutely, but it's not it's not bad either. I translated a novel um, in order to improve my Chinese. I translated a novel by Louis Cha, who was he's uh, he died a couple of years ago now, but he created the fantasy world of Chinese people, the sort of uh, Lord of the Rings and uh, Grimm's fairy tales and Harry Potter and Hans Christian Andersen and everything else all thrown in together. That is the contribution of Louis Cha. His Chinese name is Zha Liang Yong, or in his, his pen name, Jin Yong. And he wrote 18 books, I think is the number. And the characters and the situations in that, they're all sort of vaguely Kung Fu-ish. They were written in the 60s and 70s. And translating that book, it was again something which uh, was published by Oxford. My translation was published by Oxford University Press. And so that, uh, again, provides me with huge credibility. I can say that I rejected Sui Jian from my band, and I, I, knew, I knew Jin Yong, and I translated a book which was published, one of his books published by Oxford University Press. And that gets wires from the audience. Now, translating a book is actually not all that difficult. You just start at the first page, first line, first word, and go all the way through to the end. In other words, persistence is the key here rather than anything else. In my case, I was very lucky to know him, and he said, call me any time if you have any questions, and I did, because that was just so amazing to have the opportunity to do that. And I got to know him very well. And uh, the transcript of the trial that I mentioned at the beginning of this uh, was published by Mr. Cha in a, in a new mag... He just, he just launched a new magazine called the Ming Bao Monthly. This would have been in 1979-1980, and I passed to him the full transcript document, and he published it, and that was a huge scoop for the Ming Bao. I then, well, after he published it, said, can I have it back, please? He said, oh, I flushed it down the toilet. I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> he said, I thought you'd want me to do that. I said, no, I did not want you to do that. That's funny. And the, the process of translating, doing something like that, is of enormous help in terms of improving the level of, of one's ability in a language. And, and so, you know, the start on the first page, I, my Chinese was uh, pretty terrible. At the end of the book, I, I could read through it stuff you know, just like a breeze. It was just dead easy. That's a great way to learn. Okay, so next up is the lightning round. Faster-paced questions. Feel free to answer at whatever length you want. Expand, don't, doesn't matter. Feel ready? Let's give it a try. Okay, so the first is, what is a must-read publication that you look at almost every day? I guess Google News doesn't count. I'd say, of, of all the publications out there, I think the Financial Times is doing the best job in terms of reporting China. And also, the wider world as well. I think if there's, if there's a publication which is nailing it in a way that feels balanced, without fear or favor, I think the Financial Times is doing it. And then, what is a publication you... Uh, something vaguely journalistic in nature that you get more of pure enjoyment just out of reading it or consuming it rather could be any medium I watch the New Yorker magazine with great interest I find a very large number of items in there that are worth reading that are worth spending time on they are superior if journalism is described as something which is explaining the world in a way which is colorful and approachable then I think the New Yorker does it better than anybody else and then what is the best journalistic article piece 
again, whatever medium that you have consumed recently. And recently can mean whatever you want it to mean. So in terms of what do I, you know, the stories that I've read, I think that David Barbosa is doing a, a great job in terms of The Wire. And Jamil Andalini's latest piece on uh, the Stockholm Syndrome, I think, is, uh, is, a, is a superb piece of opinion journalism. I'll have to look for that. I feel like this one might be up your alley. If you had to trade places with one journalist, living or dead, and you would have their career... Who would it be? In many ways, George Morrison is the obvious answer to that. He was the Times correspondent in Peking during the Boxer Rebellion. And he knew that journalists were just people who were writing about other people doing things, but he also wanted to do stuff. And fortunately, he ended up getting heavily involved in Chinese politics, not necessarily on the right side. But George Morrison is an extraordinary guy, and his, there's a biography of him which is well worth reading. And when he was right at the start, when he was early 20s, he walked across Australia by himself. He started from the northern shore of the Gulf of Carpent uh, from the Gulf of Carpentaria, and he walked south through the centre of the country down to Adelaide. That's insane. <laughs> I mean, it's mostly desert, and you know, will I be able to find water? Because you, you can only carry, you know, a certain amount of food and water. And he he did it using you know the aboriginal tricks of being able to suss out sense where the you know where water might be and stuff like that but to walk across australia i mean i've walked across china you know i mean it's it's absolutely child's play to what uh, george morrison did walking across australia wow yeah i've never heard of him i'll have to look him up in that biography he was known as morrison of peking sort of to history and his reporting on the boxer rebellion the lead up to it which is when the boxers, who were sort of rebels from the countryside, they attacked Beijing with the support of the Manchu government. And they besieged the foreign legations of Peking. And uh, 55 days, they were in there before a relief force arrived. And then they started a massing, massive looting session across Peking, which was uh, highly unfortunate. Uh, nevertheless, Morrison and his reporting out of Peking defined that whole era of China. And then... What is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? Stop wasting time. <laughs> Seems like you've fit, fit a lot into your life, but I wouldn't say you wasted too much time. No, I, I probably haven't, but, you know, time management and focus and persistence are the secrets. And you can waste as much time as you like. You can waste it all and achieve nothing. And there are some people who, who would argue that the best way to lead life is to sit under a tree and, and mull the infinite. But my approach would be that the, you know, the more you achieve, that there is something positive that comes out of achievement. That is positive, right? That, that there's, there's, there's a value in some way, either to yourself or to others, from doing it. And if that's true, then the more that you do in that regard, the better it is for you and for everybody else. And so uh, just volume of achievement somehow or other feels important to me. Sure. So stop wasting time. That, I, I mean that for you too, Jake. <laughs> Thanks. I'll keep that in mind. Uh, what is one thing most people don't know about you? That I'm very shy. Huh. And you use... I mean, I find like a lot of journalists get into it because it's, it, there's an artifice to it that forces you to talk to people. It's the same as with musicians as well. Most musicians are shy. 
And the reason they're musicians is because they can hide behind the mic. Yeah, that makes sense. What is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media about journalists? It could be nonfiction or fiction, just something in some way related to journalists. I won't be the first person to say it, but I think Scoop by Evelyn Waugh is a wonderful book, and it was always something that we used to refer back to in my days with Reuters. I think probably the relevance of it now has probably declined. I had the honour of publishing a novel by one of your colleagues, uh, Reuters correspondent editor by the name of Nick McPhee, and the, the novel is called Hadley, and we published three of them, and they all sold really badly. <laughs> Not because of the quality of the books, but because of the fact that, that obscure authors, it's just incredibly difficult to get traction. And also, Earnshaw Books is an incredibly small and obscure publishing house on the edge of the world. In scale terms, we don't compare very well with Simon & Schuster, let me just say that. And so marketing oomph in the core markets is absolutely essential but on the other hand, just publishing a book is good. And uh, so Hadley was a, a middle-aged, gruff, alcoholic journalist working on an editing desk for a new, an international news agency in Hong Kong. And the first book involves him getting involved in farcical experiences related to the choice of the next James Bond, the next actor to play James Bond in the movies. <laughs> And uh, then there was another one, and there was a third one. They're, they're all great. If you're interested in books which look at journalism from an unusual angle, I think Nick's three books about Hadley are definitely worth checking out. All available on Kindle. Yeah, that's wild. Nick McPhee's definitely edited some of my stories. I have no idea about mm -hmm. that connection. And he is one of the most experienced and reliable editors, uh, journalists around the world. And if he's desking a story, you know it's going to go okay. And it was, again, you know, being a publisher, the, the huge benefit of being a publisher is not making large amounts of money, because I, I promise you, it doesn't. But uh, in terms of the ability to have a really deep relationship, to get to know people, to get to know the authors and the stories that they tell, it is, it's, it's a magical process. And I'm a, an active editor and publisher. And so, for instance, with the, with the Nick books, you know, I'm an active player in terms of editing it and talking through the plot with him and working out how to, to make it as good as it can be. I hope Nick won't mind when I say that at the end of the manuscript that he submitted, he kills Hadley. And I said, Nick, you can't kill Hadley. He's got to go back to the desk and then wait for his next adventure. And so that's the way it was when we published it. <laughs> Yeah, I'll have to look for that. I, yeah, I had no idea. And then the last question is, if you couldn't do what you do, have done in your career, if you couldn't be a journalist, editor, or publisher, qualifications aside, what other job would you do? I would like to be a very rich person. <laughs> That's actually, uh, somebody gave that a few ago, and I was surprised it took 45 <laughs> answers to get to that, because, yeah, <laughs> working is perhaps overrated. No, the, the thing is that money, in some ways, it's overrated, and, and, and certainly the, 
uh, there are disadvantages to money, particularly if it's inherited. And for kids growing up in a wealthy, moneyed environment, I have never met one who wasn't screwed up in some way by that experience. But money provides you with the ability to do all sorts of things and to speed up the process of doing things. So I do all sorts of stuff, right? But if I had just a few million extra, <laughs> if I had a few million, if I had just a few million, I mean, there's all sorts of things that I could do. I've got the energy and I've got the ideas. What I lack is the capital. And so uh, being rich would provide that. Now, the problem, uh, one of the problems of being rich, of course, is that you become lazy. And staying on the edge in terms of pushing for achievement to, to you know, doing stuff is, I would imagine, one of the great problems of being rich. But it's a problem that I would love to face. <laughs> yeah, worst problems to have. Worst problems to have. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, I think this went great. Uh, so I'll just wrap up by saying, uh, yeah, thanks again, Graham. This has been a, a great conversation. Fantastic. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Graham Earnshaw, an independent publisher in China. I'll post links to some of the things Graham talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at, at @foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, July 4th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.